All right. This evening is the second of a two-part mini-series that I've titled, What Do We Believe? Now, I know that some of you last Sunday evening uh, were in a Trinity Baptist uh, team meeting, and so you missed the first part of this. Uh, so I will do a quick, very quick review, uh, and, uh, and then we'll get into the, the second part here. Before I do that, uh, two books that I mentioned last week that I'll mention again, uh, primarily because, one, they're really, really helpful, especially in preparing this, and two, these are, books are both now uh, in our church library. And so uh, the first one is by a pastor out in New England titled, uh, named Nate Pickowicz, and the book is titled Christ and Creed. I mentioned last week there's a loose connection to our church, uh, Nate Pastors Kendra Chapman's Parents. So that's the connection. And then uh, this book by Rebecca McLaughlin titled The Secular Creed. So these are both in, uh, in our library. If, uh, if that would benefit you. So what did we cover last week? Well, I'm glad you asked. Last week, uh, we sought to understand uh, that when somebody were to, if somebody were to ask us, what do you believe? And you were to finish the statement, well, I believe, and you had less than a minute, uh, how would you answer that? Or it'd be helpful to know how to answer that. And so creeds are statements of belief. And they almost always begin with, I believe or we believe. Our beliefs determine our behavior. You can't escape that. You can wish it weren't true, but it's, it's true. That's how God has made us. The way we believe or what we believe will determine how we live. And so even secular companies know this. We talked last week about some of the creeds that secular companies have. Then last week, we spent most of our time looking at creeds in Scripture, so there, these are some on the screen here, some creeds in the Bible. And then uh, there's one that we probably know the best, and that's one that we read together just a few minutes, bef uh, few minutes ago from 1 Corinthians 15. This creed was given to Paul. It was passed down to Paul. He said he received it, and then he was passing it on to others. And this creed was in accordance with the scriptures. So it was submitted to God's word, as are all good creeds. And we spent the, the rest of our time last week looking at the Apostles' Creed, uh, which, again, if you weren't here last week, um, we'll, we'll sing the Apostles' Creed later on in our service, so you'll at least know what we were talking about last week. That's the quick review. Now, tonight, my plan is to continue to increase our appreciation for the rich lineage of creeds and confessions that we have, as well as to understand how they help us accurately communicate what we believe. That's my goal uh, this evening. How did we get from the Apostles' Creed down to our church's statement of faith? So we have a five-page statement of faith that if you're a member, you have agreed that this is what you believe, at least in part. And what happened to get from the Apostles' Creed to our church's statement of faith today? Well, it took about 2,000 years. And so we're going to trace 2,000 years tonight in about 30 minutes or so, all right? Uh, I'll give you this warning right now. There's going to be a lot of stuff on the screen. If you're a person who likes to write down everything on the screen, you'll be frustrated tonight. I'm going to try to move quickly. But, as is always the case, I'm happy to share my full manuscript notes with you and or the PowerPoint with you, so please just let me know that if that would be a help to you. I hope that tonight, as we survey 2,000 years, I hope it leaves you uh, with... Something of the feeling that you get maybe after you, you finish a good book. Or perhaps uh, if you like watching documentaries. Who likes watching documentaries? 
Maybe it depends on what it is, right? When you finish watching a good documentary and someone says, oh, what's it about? What do you say? Well, you kind of hit like the high points, right? Like, like well, it's about this person or, or this event and, and it kind of traced what happened. Uh, you, you can't really say everything that happened in the documentary, but, but you kind of get the big picture of what happened. And I hope that that's uh, the effect that this will have on, on us tonight. Let me uh, pray, and then we'll get into uh, the second half of this mini-series, What Do We Believe? Father, we do thank you. We thank you for our spiritual siblings from generations ago who considered your word and thought how best to summarize your word in, in short summary statements, creeds, and confessions. And so we are really grateful for this rich heritage. And we pray uh, that our appreciation and understanding of what we believe would grow. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. So after the Apostles' Creed, or really you might say with the Apostles' Creed, back in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, uh, there came a very, very important creed in church history, and that is the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed. As we go through these, I'm hoping just to give you a quick summary of what happened, what was important, and especially to help you see, uh, to trace the development down to our church's statement of faith. Okay, so this was in the 4th century, and we had Constantine, who was the ruler, and he had approved Christianity and even promoted Christianity, uh, but there were some discussions about what Christians actually believed, and so he called 200 church leaders from all over the Roman Empire to gather, and guess where they gathered? In Nicaea. That's the city where they gathered, so that's why it's called the Nicene Creed. This was the very first ecumenical council. Now, if you were raised in the church tradition I was raised in, you're like, oh, ecumenical, like, oh, that, like, that sounds bad. And I understand why that may sound bad to us right now, but ecumenical just means it represents a number of different Christian churches. That's really what it means, okay? Uh, so they all, these 200 church leaders all came together. And why did they, what, what, what was the purpose for this occasion? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's open our Bibles to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. We're not going to be uh, in a passage for very long tonight, but this is an important event in church history, and I want us to consider what God has to say about it. So here's the scene, okay? Christianity, after being under persecution for hundreds of years, now is, is promoted. So guess what happened? Christian teachings spread, because now the church was no longer underground. It was out in the open. And so Christian teaching spread. Guess what else spread? False teachings. False doctrine. In particular, there was a division that was formed around two words that in the Greek language are different by only one letter. I think the first one's pronounced homoousios, and the second one is similar, but there's an extra I in there. Okay, But you see how similar these two words are. And the question is, are the Son, the Son of God, and the Father, God the Father, of the same substance, which is the first Greek word on the screen, or of similar substance? Now, you might be here thinking like, what in the world, Pastor Kevin? Like, I was not thinking Greek when I showed up here. I understand. I understand. Okay. But, but stay with me. This was a major controversy. It's a very important question. You may not know Greek, but you can answer the, second, you can answer the question, can't you? 
The answer is really, really important. Jehovah's Witnesses would answer one way. We should answer the other way. So there's, at that time, a church leader named Arius, and there were some others that taught that Jesus was not God. He was of a similar substance, but not the same substance. You're in Colossians 1. In just a moment, we'll read verse 19. But remember what, what John 1 says. How does the gospel according to John begin? In the beginning was the word, some of you can quote it, and the word was with God and the word was God. So in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, for in him, now who's the him? You can look up above verses preceding that, that's the son. In him, in the son, the son of God, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Same book, Colossians. Next chapter, chapter 2, Colossians 2, verse 9. Colossians 2, verse 9. For in him, now look just a couple words before that, which are speaking of Christ. Okay, so for in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Or Hebrews 1, verse 3. He, that's Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So most of the men, the church leaders gathered at Nicaea, most of them agreed with what the Bible says. And they said, Jesus is of the same substance as God the Father. And they asked everyone who was there to sign it. Well, Arius did not, as well as some others. And so they were excommunicated. They were considered not Christian, or at least not orthodox, small o, not, not faithful to the doctrine. Interesting tidbit of history, okay? The debate at the Nicene Council got very heated, and according to legend, at one point, there's a church leader from southern Turkey who got so upset with what he deemed to be blasphemy that he slapped Arius, like physically hit him. That man, his name is Nicholas. He's now known as St. Nicholas or St. Nick. That's how the legend has developed over time. So it's led to some funny memes this time of year. This is the legend of, of St. Nicholas. Now, how much of it is true? Well, what is true is that that was the debate of the Nicene Council. And that was what was decided by all these church leaders is that, no, Jesus is of the same substance, not just a similar substance, the same substance as God. So what was the major contribution? We had the Apostles' Creed. We talked about that last week. Now we have the Nicene Creed. What's the major contribution? Well, the major con contribution, at least one of the major ones, is clarity on the Trinity. So here are a couple statements from the Nicene Creed. This is about Jesus, the Son of God. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Do you get what they're emphasizing? Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. You see what they're emphasizing? Or the Holy Spirit. The creed reads this, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. 
So the creed emphasizes one God and three persons. The creed emphasizes that Jesus is God, that the Holy Spirit is God. The creed emphasizes that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. The creed emphasizes that the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Son and the Father. And all those words were chosen very carefully to be precise in in doctrine. We actually sing part of the Nicene Creed at Christmas time. So the Christmas carol, O Come All Ye Faithful, written by John Francis Wade, he wrote that hymn in the 1700s. He got to the second stanza, and he wanted those who sing that carol to know and believe words from the Nicene Creed. So what's the second stanza of O Come All Ye Faithful? True God of true God, light from light eternal, and it goes on. Last line, son of the father, begotten, not created. Now this was a really, it still is a a really, really important belief. Some of you will remember almost a year ago, um, our church sent out an email asking you to participate in a survey, a theology survey. I can't remember how many questions there were, but multiple choice and asked you if you agreed with the statement, kind of a true or false, or how much you agreed or disagreed with it. And one of the questions in the survey uh, stated this, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. True or false? It's false. Jesus is certainly great. He's certainly the greatest being, but he was not created. Now, what's the big deal about Jesus being created? The ramifications of this lead us astray if we believe that Jesus was was created by God. I'm going to keep moving, but if you have questions about that, please ask myself or or Pastor Ross or maybe another one of the, the church leaders. The next major creed is the Chalcedonian Creed. Chalcedonian Creed. This is about 100 years after the Nicene Creed. This time, not 200 people, but 500 church leaders all got together. The emperor, whose name is Marcion, he gathered them. And guess where they gathered? In the city of Chalcedon, right, not far from from Nicaea. And why did they gather? Well, there were still people who believed wrongly that Jesus was not God. And so they gathered to affirm the Nicene Creed and to explain what we call the hypostatic union. What's the hypostatic union? It's just simply this. Jesus is fully God, or you might say truly God, and fully man, or truly man. So the major contribution is Christology. The Chalcedonian creed or definition emphasized the Christology, who Jesus Christ is. And here's a quick summary of it. Again, if you're trying to write this stuff down, you're going to be frustrated, okay? But Christ must be fully God. Christ must be fully human. The two natures must not be so mixed together that either disappears into the other or that a third hybrid nature is produced. The two natures must not be separated so as to undermine the unity of the one person. If you're like, I can't remember all this. I understand. But you should hopefully be able to to know and, and believe and remember that Jesus is truly God and truly man. He is fully God. He is fully man. Again, the survey that we took about a year ago, a little less than a year ago, one of the questions, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. True or false? That's false. Jesus 
is truly God. So we had the Nicene Council, 100 years later, the Chalcedonian Council. So they have creeds and then a definition. And then we have this creed titled, or named the Athanasian Creed. This one, uh, there's less known about its origins. But this creed is widely considered to be the best statement of what a person must believe to be a Christian. So I'm quoting here from, from this pastor out in New England, Nate Pickowicz, and he writes, If ever there were a single answer to the question, what must a person believe in order to be considered a Christian? The Athanasian Creed is that answer. Why was it created? Well, as best as we know, it was created to summarize all the doctrinal decisions of these ecumenical councils. Again, don't think ecumenical like bad, but these councils of church leaders Young, you know, Christianity is young, still early, and they're getting together to make sure that we understand what the Bible is saying. And so they make these major decisions, and the Athanasian Creed takes these major decisions, as well as brings in some of Augustine's teaching. Now, Augustine ministered in North Africa, so now we see the spread of Christianity starting to, to, to develop and, and continue. So you have teachings from the major councils, you have Augustine's teaching, and they come together to the to, to make the Athanasian Creed. What was the major contribution? Well, they're emphasizing again, Trinity and Christology. Who God is, who Jesus is. As we try to think about the Trinity, it can be difficult, right? Have you ever tried to explain the Trinity to somebody? It's best actually to kind of stay away from like illustrations because they all fail in, in some point. Um, but I think this, this verbal or this word diagram is really, really helpful. And you maybe have seen this before. This developed out of the Athanasian Creed. So you can see all the different words there and how they connect. So the Father is not the Son, but the Father is God, and the Son is God. And this just helps us, again, with our beliefs as well as with what we say to be accurate, to be precise. And that's what the Athanasian Creed, or one of the things the Athanasian Creed contributed to, to Christianity. Here's another survey question we, we took uh, less than a year ago. The Holy Spirit is a force, but is not a personal being. True or false? False. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Acts 5 teaches that as well as the other places. The Athanasian Creed, interestingly, added... Something at the beginning and at the end. So like most creeds, it begins, you know, we believe, I believe. But there's this warning at the beginning and at the end. Listen to the warning. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. Now, again, Catholic means universal. So should hold to the universal faith. Anyone who does not keep it will doubtless perish eternally. So you just see how as the church is developing, as Christians are growing in their understanding and as they're facing opposition and deciding, no, th this is what the Bible says or this is not what the Bible says, then they realize this is so important. What we believe is so important that if somebody doesn't believe this, then we can't with any certainty say that person's been, been saved. The Athanasian Creed became the foundation for many Protestant confessions. All right, let's pause here. This is like our intermission halftime, okay? 
So we've gone through four creeds coming last week. Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Chalcedonian Definition, and the Athanasian Creed. Next, we're going to look at how Protestant confessions came out of these creeds, and especially out of the Athanasian Creed. Now, they all kind of build on each other as time goes on. But what's the, what's the difference between Protestant confessions and creeds? Okay. We have creeds and confessions. Are they the same? Are they different? Well, together, this is one way in which they're similar, together they serve as guardrails of our beliefs. So beliefs are sourced in the Bible, right? Christian beliefs are sourced in the Bible. But together, creeds and confessions help us stay, if you will, on the right road, like in line with, with the way Christians, with the inspiration of the Spirit, understanding of the Spirit, have, have determined this is what the Bible means, and, and this is how we interpret the Bible according to the Bible. They serve as guardrails. So that's how creeds and confessions are, are similar. Some have said it this way. Confessions are about what we believe. Creeds are about in whom we believe. And you'll notice this. Uh, generally, if you read creeds or confessions, generally, not always, but generally, a creed will start, we believe in. A confession will start, we believe that. So working together, but that's, that's a difference. And then you also have a, a third C word that's important. That is catechism. We'll talk more about catechisms in, in, in a little bit. How are they different? How are creeds and confessions different? Well, the timing is one way in which they're different. So creeds developed between like the 4th and 6th centuries. Confessions developed later on, the 16th, 17th, 18th, some 19th centuries. So a long gap in time uh, between, between the two. What was the, what's the purpose? Well, the purpose is a little bit different. So the purpose of creeds is to summarize essential doctrines. The purpose of confessions is to apply those essential doctrines to church life. So because this is true, we're going to do this. Another way in which they're, they're different is that creeds unite all true Christians. There's a unity with these creeds. We all believe this. Confessions often distinguish churches and denominations from one another. So if you're familiar with theological triage, first level, second level, third level doctrines or beliefs, is something we've taught on before. Uh, first level, that's normally creed, creedal beliefs. Second level would be normally confession. Now there's overlap and all that, but generally you can think of it that way. They also differ in their use. Creeds were intended to be recited publicly. In the corporate worship of the church, creeds were intended as something of a pledge of allegiance. Maybe you grew up saying the Pledge of Allegiance. Christians, for millennia, literally, often would gather on Sundays and recite creeds together as their Pledge of Allegiance to God. We believe in God, the way he's expressed as Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit. While confessions are not intended to, to be recited publicly. We wouldn't, well, I guess we could, but we normally wouldn't read our entire statement of faith together, all five pages of it. But they are intended to guide and govern our lives together. And then uh, another difference between the two is that creeds generally are universal, and they're timeless, whereas confessions tend to be 
local and responsive. That is, they respond to changes in culture. They respond to to events. So with that knowledge, why would there be this major gap in time between creeds and confessions? What would have happened that affected Christianity in the 1500s? The Protestant Reformation. So what happens is the Roman Catholic Church continues to go astray, and Protestants are reading their Bibles and, and saying, no, this, this is like what, they're, what, what the organized church, the Roman Catholic, is teaching is not in line with the Bible, and they're starting to make their own statements of belief. They would still believe the creeds, but the way church life is done and the application of those beliefs is different from what the Roman Catholic Church is is testifying or is is believing or is is teaching. That's why these confessions really just grew exponentially during the Reformation. We also had, of course, the the printing press and all this, so just teachings could be more widely available. Well, for example, in in one 20-year stretch during the Reformation, over 50 Protestant confessions were written. We're not going to go through all 50 tonight. Don't worry, okay? I'm just going to hit some highlights. these, These are some of the important confessions, not all of them, but some of them. So we're going to zoom in on the timeline. You'll notice we're going from 2,000 years of history to now 50 years of history. First, we have the Augsburg Confession. If that sounds like Germany, it is. This is Luther and some of his uh, partners in theology. They developed this creed. I'm sorry, this confession, but they followed the general order of the Apostles' Creed. And the confession is about the Roman Catholic Church being wrong. And about how these Christians were going to support the government. They were not anti-government. Next, about 30 years later, you had the Belgic Confession. This is written by a French pastor who's a student of John Calvin. So if you know Reformation history, you know you have Luther, he's a major character. You have Calvin, he's a major character. And so you have the Augsburg Confession, you have the Belgic Confession. It's written in what is now Belgium. And this one was used by Reformed denominations throughout France. Three years later, the Heidelberg Catechism was written. Now, what's a catechism? How does a catechism differ from a creed or confession? We've talked about creeds and confessions already. And tonight, we've participated in catechism. Joel was up here, and he led us in reading questions 10, 11, 12 of the Foundation's Catechism. Now, what's a catechism? A catechism is written to teach what the creeds and confessions state. So it's a question-and-answer style designed to be used in church life as well as within, within the home. And the Heidelberg Catechism was written by a man who was a theology professor in Germany. The Heidelberg Catechism takes language and expressions from the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian def- definition, and the Athanasian Creed. And like brings them all together into the Heidelberg Catechism. You probably know at least one question of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's the first one. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So even now, we sing like an exposition of this catechism. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone we sing, right? That's all based on this Heidelberg Catechism. Three years after this, We have the Helvetic Confession. This is a Swiss pastor who writes this to serve the Protestant churches among the Swiss people. 
It's used by many Protestant Reformed churches throughout Europe. And then as we move across the English Channel, we get the Articles of Religion. This is developed by the Church of England. Thomas Cranmer, and there are others, and this was finalized after the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent is when the Roman Catholic Church said, hey, we've listened to the Protestant reformers. We've listened to like how you disagree with us, and you're wrong. I'm like summarizing, okay? It's more official language than that. But, but the Roman Catholic Church listened to what the Protestants were saying, and they said, no, you're wrong. We're going to keep doing our thing, teaching our thing. And so other confessions came out uh, in response to that, including the Articles of Religion. This requires the Anglican Church, which is the Church of England, to affirm the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and the Apostles' Creed. Now, if I've lost you, I, I apologize, but I hope you can at least see how these confessions are coming out of the creeds. Right? The Protestants are, in a sense, like returning to the roots of Christianity and say the Roman Catholic Church has led us this way. We're going back to the Bible ultimately and the, the doctrines as they're expressed or summarized in these, these major creeds. Now we'll move to the 17th century. So the timeline moves to the 1600s. We have the Canons of Dort. This one, interestingly, had the greatest national diversity involved in, in the, those who, who would write it. People from nine different nations or city-states at that time gathered. So it represented a large swath of Europe. People came from even the British Isles, would come together to, to work on this, this statement, this confession. So the canons of Dort joined the Belgic Confession that we talked about a few minutes ago and the Heidelberg Catechism, these three things, to form what, what's known now as uh, the three doctrinal standards of Dutch and German Reformed churches. So I think it's the three forms of unity is what it's called. And many, many of our Protestant brothers and sisters still refer to these three major documents, the Canons of Dort, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism. You probably haven't. I don't know your denominational background, but I, I, most of us here probably haven't. But most of us here are familiar, at least in content, to the next major confession, which is the Westminster Confession. Westminster, named because uh, in England, the Puritans had control of Parliament, and so they gathered 120 British theologians. Over the course of 10 years, they gathered in Westminster Abbey, which is why it's called the Westminster Confession, and they wanted to decide what the Church of England would believe and teach. Now, these are Puritans. So they're trying to return to, to what Scripture says. And out of this assembly, over ten years, they developed really three documents. You have the Westminster Confession. You have the larger catechism, which was intended to be used in churches. And then the shorter catechism, which is intended to be used by individuals, especially by children. And this was large, this was like hugely influential. These documents include language and themes and references to all the creeds and catechisms that you've heard about tonight. So what they're doing is over 10 years, these individuals are pulling doctrine, teaching from apostles and Nicene and Athanasian and, and all these things because they're, they're the latest version, if you will, and they're able to build on the foundation that, that had been laid. 
You know probably at least one question of the Westminster Catechism. It's the first question of the Westminster Catechism. We've said it here together. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, a note here on the use of catechisms just, just in our church, just so you can understand now that you've maybe seen a quick survey of, of how these things have developed. Uh, within our Awana ministry, within the Sparks Club, so that's kindergarten through second grade, on Wednesday nights, they are working through uh, what's called the New City Catechism. So it looks like this. Now, the New City Catechism is simply uh, modern English of the Heidelberg Catechism. Heidelberg Catechism was written in German, so it had to be translated to English at some point for us to use it. And that's, this is what the Sparks are le learn on, on Wednesday night. I'm not sure exactly which number they're on right now. Maybe somebody who's in Sparks would, would know. But we use this in our church, the Heidelberg Catechism, or this modern English rendition of it uh, on Wednesday nights. And then on Sunday nights, like we did tonight, uh, we've been using a catechism called Foundations Catechism. Now, what is Foundations Catechism? There's a pastor... Uh, maybe an hour south of here, uh, ministering at a church in Farmington Hills, and he took Heidelberg Catechism, Westminster Catechism, as well as some Baptist catechisms and some other influences, and brought them together into a catechism for Christian growth. And the foundations selections are the 20 that he believes you know, it would be best for churches to, to recite together, to say together. And so our church has benefited from his work, and again, he's pulling together, we're pulling together uh, Heidelberg Catechism, Westminster Catechism, as well as Benjamin Keach, if you know the name, and some other people. So, we as a church get to use this teaching tool of catechism on Wednesday nights, on Sunday nights as well. Did any of you grow up doing catechism in any form, in any shape? Did you grow up? So you're very familiar with the questions and answers it was part of the homeschooling curriculum that my, my, my mom used with us, so I memorized many questions and answers. Now, we're getting down to today. The next major confession, in, at least in our church tradition, would be the London Baptist Confession. So same part of the world, but now it's a Baptist perspective, if you will, or Baptist belief. Whereas the Westminster Confession was meant to really unite, when possible, Puritan Anglicans and Presbyterians and Congregationalists, the London Baptist Confession became the standard Baptist Confession for Baptist churches. And so when people came to the New World, guess what they brought with them, if they were Baptists? They brought the London Baptist Confession with them. Later on, in Philadelphia... A group of pastors in Philadelphia reprinted the London Baptist Confession, but they didn't, want, they didn't call it the London Baptist Confession. Guess what they called it? The Philadelphia Confession. But it's the same thing, except they added two chapters. You're curious what they added, aren't you? Oh, you're not curious? Well, no, never mind. <laughs> they added a chapter on singing praise and a chapter on laying on of hands. But other than that, the Philadelphia Confession is the London Baptist Confession, which was written based on the Westminster Confession, which was written based on the creeds and the other confessions that came before it. Then, a group of pastors in New Hampshire created a confession, and they called it the New Hampshire Confession. And what is the New Hampshire Confession? 
It took most of the elements of the London Confession, which was reprinted in Philadelphia, which was based on the Westminster Confession, which was based on all the creeds and confessions before it. And the New Hampshire Confession became the standard for many, many Baptist churches in the northern part of the U.S. Now that takes us to 1853. What happened in 1858, five years later, in a small frontier town in Michigan called Lapeer? Nine people gathered in the home of Caleb Hicks to establish a Baptist ministry. And five years after the New Hampshire Confession was established, our church began. And then a few years later, they decided to adopt the New Hampshire Confession as the First Baptist Church of Lapeer Statement of Faith, or Confession. So you see how creeds, Protestant confessions, Westminster, London, through Philadelphia, through New Hampshire, now to us today. And we have today our First Baptist Church of Lapeer Statement of Faith. Now, I don't want to mislead you, because if you were to take the New Hampshire Confession, which you can find online, readily available, and compare it to our church's Statement of Faith, you'll see some, some like lots of overlap, especially in, in content and in theme. But you'll notice some differences. Why? Why would our church, why would any church, take a confession or a statement and, and tweak it or adapt it? Let me give you one example of, of why. Because times change, don't they? So my understanding, I wasn't here 10 years ago, but my understanding is that 10 years ago, our church went from 18 sections in our statement of faith, 18 topics or themes, and added a 19th. You know what the 19th is addressing? Human sexuality and marriage. Because times change, don't they? So even right now, our church leaders are wondering if we need to adapt or tweak or improve that statement because 10 years ago, transgenderism wasn't a thing, or at least not a thing that was prevalent in culture. But it is now. And so you see how a church may need to and often does need to adjust their statement of faith, what they believe, because of, of things that happen. This is true of confessions, not true of creeds, but it's true of confessions and statements of faith. Now, maybe you're wondering, why, why do we call it a statement of faith and not a confession? Good question. Generally speaking, statements of faith would be uh, adapted or approved or adopted by individual autonomous churches or ministries. A confession would be more maybe universal, or it's agreed upon by, by a whole lot of churches or ministries, but individual churches would, would maybe adjust things for, for their individual autonomous church. 2,000 years, guys, we did it. We did it. Now, again, like a documentary, right? No one's going to ask you, what happened to the Helvetic Confession? No one's going to ask you that, okay? But perhaps you've grown in your understanding of how we went from the apostles' teaching, Acts, they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching through the creeds, through the confessions, now to what, what we believe as members of First Baptist Church today. So my goal has just been to help us know, but then really more than that, to help us appreciate. Help us appreciate the good work that our spiritual ancestors have done. They have served us so well. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then we're going to close by singing the Apostles' Creed.
If you were here last uh, Sunday evening, we sang this together. It's been sung one other time in, in our church gatherings. Uh, if you weren't here, um, you can jump right in and, and sing it along with us. It's a very simple melody, and it just really summarizes the Apostles' Creed. Let's pray, and then we'll sing and be dismissed. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for how you have worked in your church and your people over thousands of years. You've told us in your word that, that your church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. So, Father, help us to guard your truth. Help us to be able to pass down to our children and our grandchildren and great-grandchildren the truth of what you say in your word. Lord, may we be a faithful passer of the baton. We've been given so much. and We want to be faithful to, to carry it to the next generation. Lord, give us wisdom even now in this time in our church life and in our culture to, to know what should be in our statement of faith. We pray that you just give clarity and wisdom that we might be faithful to your word. Father, I pray as we head into this week uh, that we will be intentional in our conversations with others to share the good news of Jesus and even to invite uh, others to, to our Christmas program. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.